Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode. The Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. I want a lot of us are working from home lately. And part of that is building out your home battle station or your uh, or your remote work station. And as part of an ongoing desire of mine to try to uh, introduce more physical activity into my life. So I'm making sure that uh, I'm I'm doing my part to combat heart disease. I have switched to a standing desk and the, the desk that I chose was one made by a company called Vivo. Now, the thing about Vivo is I suspect based on the their their website and the and the price of the product and all of that that the truth is it's probably a less expensive uh desk it's kind of a budget product but i will tell you this i have worked with some really high end furniture companies we typically at the office buy steel case and um and herman miller and, and and those kinds of brands so i'm i'm familiar with uh with what good quality desks and and what to expect out of good quality chairs and stuff like that and i have to tell you I'm pretty impressed with this Vivo standing desk. The it it ha it works great. It uh, I have had one now for a year and a half, and uh, that I had at my house that I was just testing. We recently bought a couple of them for the office, so they don't break down. It supports multiple desk sizes, so you can choose which desktop or which desk surface you want to mount on it. It has uh, a number of different memory positions, so you can choose you know the sitting position, the standing position. Then there's a third one. So if you share it with somebody else, something like that, um, and the motor is quick and stable and smooth. One of the things I was concerned about very early on when we started looking at some of these, you know, budget, more budget brand desks was, is the motor going to be jerky and is it going to knock beverages over, knock monitors over? If we save 500 bucks on buying a desk, but trash a $1,200 monitor, we're not really ahead of the game. You know, this is not a path to success. That's not the case. This is a very... This is a very, very smooth uh, system that they have, and, um, and, and so they've, they've done a really excellent job, and so I'm, I'm really happy with this, particular, uh, with this particular model. I will post the link in the, in the uh, show notes, and what you have to understand is when you go to purchase it, you're going to have to purchase two things separately. You're going to have to purchase the desk legs, which is, that's the part that I'm talking about, and then you have to purchase a, a a top. Now, you could just go buy a butcher block from your local hardware store. You could take a door, Jeff Bezos, that's how he started Amazon.com. Uh, you could just take a door and mount it to to the desk. The nice thing about the Vivo frame is it doesn't care what you uh, what you mount. They don't, they don't care which one you mount. I also found it fairly easy to transport. It breaks apart pretty quickly, and you know, I can throw it in the back of my car and, and move the... Um, and move the move the 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 frame around. Uh, obviously, transporting the actual desktop is a little bit more difficult. And finally, the polish that goes into this product, I was really impressed uh, with the little remote head. It has two little screw holes, and you can simply mount that head wherever you like. So, if you're a person that likes the controls on the left side of the desk, you can do that. 
If you go on the right side of the desk, you can do that. Also, 2-Bit in the chat room suggests the Jarvis desk frame. Um, I'd be interested to see what the difference in price is. The Vivo desk standing desk frame is $300. Now, that again, that does not include the top. You have to purchase a desk top. Um, now, you can purchase those. Amazon has a couple that were like 50 60 bucks that were just compressed wood. Um, I went with some from Ikea that were a little bit better, uh, or at least seemed like they were a little bit bigger, and they, they certainly were a little bit wider, which I liked. But the fact that you get input on that is, I, I really thought was pretty fantastic. And then little stuff, like putting a caddy for all of the cables and a small power splitter and stuff like that, really goes above and beyond to show that this is a quality product. So the desk is Vivo, and uh, it's a it's the Vivo standing desk. I'll have a link for you in the show notes, but I've been very, very impressed with it so far. Just wanted to share that. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Brandon, in our, uh, in our di- er, excuse me, in our Matrix chat, says that he purchased uh, the monoprice uh, legs, and he said that they were pretty pretty awesome. Hey, I want to invite Brandon and my friend Eric, the IT guy. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Noah. How's it going? Hey, good, uh, good evening. I- I'm glad that you guys that were able to make the time to be here. So this is really exciting. Eric, you and I have been, uh, we've been friends and, and, and working on content together for, for the past few years in a, in a variety of different aspects. A lot of people don't know, Eric, that you've helped out quite a bit behind the scenes, um, both with the, with the JB crew and, and, and me personally. And so, you know, a, a huge thank you to that. And Brandon, obviously, you've contributed content for us uh, for our YouTube channel as well as come on the show a couple of times. And so both of you are, are very valuable community resources and recently you guys have decided to start your own podcast it's called the pseudo show it's about system administration you're going to combine the experience of a devops engineer and a guy who works at red hat and has touched every piece of technology under the sun literally the guy that brought you literally the guy who brought you the video guide on how to set up overt enterprise virtualization technology this is a fantastic show tell me about it guys so yeah uh the pseudo show is going to be your place for all things enterprise open source. And uh, we're, we're going to cover topics from DevOps and Agile. Uh, we're going to cover uh, open source cloud management. Uh, so it's, it's going to take a, a systems administrator approach, uh, but also kind of, uh, kind of a new age development uh, methodology uh, approach. Uh, but then Brandon and I have also worked from home for a, a number of years. And so we're going to cover productivity tips, uh, share some of our own stories. We've got a number of interviews lined up, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. Brandon, what's your thoughts? Uh, how how has it been, kind of onboarding and and getting set up with uh, with doing podcasting? This is your first uh, first attempt at that, yeah? It is, and uh, um, you know, it's a lot of prep work and uh, juggling that with my day job has been uh, you know a bit of a struggle, but you know, I'm working through it. What uh, when does the first episode drop, or has it already? It so dropped the, uh, last Thursday. And what and what is the first episode about? What did you guys cover? So we covered uh, just an uh, introductory to what what is open source. What or what does enterprise open source even mean? Talked about some of the players, um, where that's uh, Red Hat or uh, SUSE and. Um, uh, you know the business models in, in the in the 
uh, in the space and a variety of other uh, topics in the first in the first show. You know, nice little bite-sized uh, podcast. You know, we're we're keeping it to twenty to thirty minutes long. And and what uh, what do we have coming up on the next episode? <laughs> um, funny you should ask. Uh, I, I think we I think we called an audible today. Um, folks that, uh, that that think it's interesting to uh, to start a podcast uh, should take the amount of work they think it's going to be and probably about triple it. Yeah. I, I think would be about right. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we we realized that the topic we had laid out for next week uh, is a little bit more. Uh, in, a little bit more involved than we were expecting. So we might be shifting a little bit and might be taking a look at, uh, we, we got some questions uh, from the first show about how, how to get started with open source. Uh, we, we talked about contributing back, uh, opening, opening pull requests or, or submitting feature requests to open source projects. Uh, so we got a few questions around that. Uh, and, and having Rand and I having both contributed, I feel we feel we felt like that was something we could uh, we could address. And based on on the, the feedback that we got, we feel like we should address because we, we're, we're trying to approach both the business as well as the community and kind of mm. kind of be a bridge between the two. Um, and, and not to not to go down on too far of a rabbit trail, but uh, uh, we we've noticed that some of the some of the folks that that come to the show from the DevOps uh, business enterprise perspective didn't I don't want to say they didn't know there was a community there, but didn't really understand how to get involved and and how to how to get started. So we're I think episode two is going to be uh, how how do you get your foot in the door? How do you how do you start uh, getting involved with the community? This is excellent. This is absolutely awesome. So the show is called the Pseudo Show. The first episode is live. It releases every every other Thursday. It releases every other Thursday. Your host Brandon. Now, Brandon, are you a permanent part of this thing? I, I never really got that. I am. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see. We haven't had his first job. <laughs> Well, this is I, I could say that here because he's my team lead during the day, and uh, and then we we co-host the pseudo show together by night. So it's 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 an entertaining dynamic. So I have to get my shots in while I can, because because uh, then when when it's business hours, then then I report to Brandon. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Brandon, Eric, seriously, congratulations, guys! This is absolutely fantastic. I invite everyone to go check it out. They can download it at uh, pseudo show. Pseudo.show. It's the Pseudo Show System Administration with your friends, Eric, the IT guy, and Brandon from Red Hat. Uh, guys, anything else you want to leave people with? Nope. I guess not. <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, if, if, you, uh, if you listen to the show, go out and uh, join us on Discourse. Um, I, yeah, I guess uh, I guess I should plug the fact that uh, the Pseudo Show uh, actually launched with a lot of help from uh, Destination Linux Network. Uh, I don't think we would have we would have uh, gone live yet, but uh, a big shout out to the network and and really excited to be teaming up with with folks like Noah and uh, and Michael. And Michael's been incredibly effective in, in helping us get get things uh, in place and and allowed us to hit our launch date. Good deal. The, the, the episode is the pseudo, pseudo Show. Guys, check it out. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on here and plug it. We appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll get you back on the program soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Noah. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chaz calls from New York. Chaz, good evening. Good evening, Al. How's it going? Hey, you know, I'm doing all right. Awesome. 
Uh, well, this is sort of picking up from a topic we discussed uh, a couple call-ins ago. I can't remember when exactly because time doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but uh, if you remember correctly, my uh, ThinkPad X260 died um, of undetermined causes a little while ago, and I've sort of been getting by with my uh, ThinkPad 11e running Zubuntu. But I do eventually want to upgrade to something that, uh, you know, with a non uh Celeron-based pro- processor and a little more RAM. And I'm wondering if you could make a recommendation in the ThinkPad line, both for something that would be good with Kubuntu and, you know, reasonable specs, as much as I would like to have the 32-gigabyte monster that uh, Chris talked about on Linux Unplugged a little while ago. I think that's a little more than what I need. You know, what I would tell you is I, I would I would start with the X1 Carbon, and then I would work my way down from there. Um, the X1 Carbon starts at a little, little over $1,000, and I have to tell you, Chaz, it has been the best laptop I've ever owned in my entire life, and I've owned a lot of them. Um, first off, the, the, the BIOS, or the UEFI interface, literally has a configuration mode for Linux. And Lenovo now, of course, officially supports... Uh, d- distributions of Linux and the X1 Carbon is one of the models that is going to be hardware enabled. So I, 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 that would be my starting point. I think that's what I think that is the best laptop you can buy uh, to today, particularly if you want something um, for Linux. Now, depending, I say starting there, right? Because there are certain features where you would stray one way or the other. So, for example, if wired Ethernet is important to you, or having the ability to have uh, Discrete graphics is important to you. Then I would push you from the X series to the T series, and I would tell you to check out the uh, the uh, the T four eighty. I think is the current model, um, and the the T four eighty again. It's going to start at a thousand bucks. What you're trading is you're trading a little bit of thickness on the laptop because the 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 X one is just razor thin, and you're going to trade that for the uh, for a slightly thicker, a slightly larger version of 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 the ThinkPad. Um, but will allow you to have a, a little bit of extra space. It supports a second drive, I believe, and uh, and has that wired Ethernet jack on, on the side. And so, th- you know, the X series is really, if you're going to be fast and portable, that's the way to go, particularly in my circumstance, right? I am most of the time using the X1 in combination with the Thunderbolt dock. And so from that perspective, it really doesn't matter how many USB ports or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, Ethernet ports, any any of that stuff, because for the most part, I, I just need to charge it and then I need to plug it into a dock. And so for me, the X1 has worked really well. Um, but if you want that that kind of experience where I where I feel like I have everything I need on the laptop itself, then I would go to a T series. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you can go when you start getting into the workstation series. That's when they start getting crazy expensive and crazy powerful. Right. What if I had? Uh accessories that I was able to salvage from the 260, like a stick of RAM or a hard drive. Is the X1 Carbon uh, one of those ones where you're really kind of stuck with the configuration you get, or um, uh, do I have the ability to swap things in and out if necessary? So the RAM, I believe, is soldered, but like the SSD and the Wi-Fi card and all of those things are all, you, the, the backplate just comes off. So they, they they didn't intentionally try to keep you from doing any of that um, but just the way that the motherboard is manufactured in order to get things that thin, they did solder the RAM. And so you have to order it with 16 gigs of RAM when it comes from the factory. And yes, Lenovo takes their pound of flesh for doing that. Um, but that was really the only compromise I had to make. In fact, the first, uh, it wasn't 
I don't think it was the 6th Gen one. I think it was the one I had before this. I ordered the lower resolution display and just swapped it myself. But uh, after going through that process, it was it was kind of hairy, and I just went, yeah, I'll just order it with the with the HD display. So I I, I have the 1080p display in mine, and I love it. All right, well, that's good information, and uh, hopefully I can find something that uh, checks all the boxes. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Michael calls from Wisconsin. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, and 73 from a fellow ham. Um, so I just had a question about uh, network bridges. I have covered every website that I can find about setting up a bridge for uh, Vert Manager or Versh um, on my server, and I cannot get the damn thing. Whether I use a static IP in the machine or DHCP, it will not get outside Internet access. I'm mm. uh, just curious if you had any idea what else I could possibly check that would be blocking that from happening. What's the host operating system? So it's it's an Ubuntu server. Now, I do have a desktop on it. Um, So it's using Network Manager, but I've tried Network D as well. Uh, I've done it through the GUI. I've done it through NMCLE. I've done it through, uh, was it using NetPlan, the new thing on Ubuntu? Um, For the life of me, I cannot get those virtual machines to get Internet. Let me ask you this. Have you tried? And my router can see it. Can you ping into the VMs from outside of the network? Only from the host machine. Only from the host. Okay, so it is a bridging issue. Um, What are you using for, excuse me, you probably said so, but what are you using for the virtualization software? Uh, So I'm using KVM. Uh, I threw a desktop on it just so I could use Vert Manager to see if I could, through the interface, do something differently. Okay, so it's libvertd underneath. Um, Right. Inside of Vert Manager, does Vert Manager, it, Vert Manager obviously connects to the, the host system because it's running on the host system, so I assume that connects no problem, right? Yep. Did you create, have you tried creating the bridge inside of Vert Manager? Uh, I didn't, well, I shouldn't say that. So I did try it before. Um, I had even less luck with that. I couldn't ping it and I couldn't see it on my router. Now, when I set a static IP, doing a bridge through either Network Manager or Network D and setting a static IP in the virtual machine, I can see it on my router. Um, so that's as far as I've really gotten, but I cannot get it. Well, uh, hold on, hold on. You back up, back up, back up. Hold on. So you can see you can see, what, you can see some of the VMs in your router? Is that what you said? Or you can see the host in your router? If I set a static IP, I can see it in my router. I just can't reach out to the internet from it, and I can't reach okay. out to the rest of my network either. Okay. Yeah, but so if so, but but if you I just sorry, if you set a static IP in one of the VMs inside of the in inside of one of the VMs, you can see that machine from outside of the uh, of the virtual host. You can see that on your router. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yep. Okay. All right. So here's so the issue is this. The issue is with the default gateway. Um. And and so, well, the issue is with with routing the other direction. I suspect it's the default gateway. Uh, are you? What kind of bridge are you looking to set up? Are you looking for your VMs to just get IP addresses as if they were computers that were just plugged into your network? Just one of them. So I've got quite a few that I'm using. You know, just the with it. Um, what's the internal network that it creates? The default one that it creates. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically for home assistant, I'm trying to create a home assistant virtual machine, or I have. Um, so I went so far as I, I just bought a NIC 
and I did a PCI pass through and assigned the mix to it right now because I couldn't figure this out. <laughs> but really, what? I wanted yes, that machine to be accessible on the rest of my network so that my wife can access Home Assistant from her phone. What I would tell you to do is this: I, 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 is it is is nuking and paving from scratch a possibility? Or are you too far into with with configuration to to, to try and start over? No, absolutely. I use Ansible um, and mostly Docker containers, so I can get it back up and running within an hour or two, and I have done that already. Okay, because just from a troubleshooting perspective, it's just going to be a lot easier if you're starting from fresh than if you're than if you're trying to figure out if there's a problem. If we're, if we're troubleshooting an old problem or if there's something new, so here here's what I would do. I would I would reset up the I would I would I would do a fresh install. I would install uh, the I would install libvirt D, and if you want to install Vert Manager on there, that's great too. Then I would open uh, Vert Manager before I do anything else, except maybe set a static IP address on the uh, on the server. Uh, I would open up Vert Manager. And I would click into the, the the server, and I would go over to the networks tab, and I would create a new uh, a bridge from there. And what that's going to what that's going to do is a couple things. First of all, we're following a process that I've done many 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 times, and so I, I know that it works. The second thing that you'll do is you will let uh, you'll let Vert Manager uh, make the configuration changes and set up the bridge for you. Um, so that those VMs can talk out. The, the so I would check. So I would check two things then after you get done with that. Uh, the first thing I would check is to see if you not only can you ping out to you know Google.com or whatever, but are you able to reach a IP address? If you can't, if you just can't resolve the name, it may be a DNS issue. If you can't reach the domain and you can't reach an IP address, then you have a then you do have a, a bridging or routing issue, and I suspect. As I say, just running, creating the bridge from Vert Manager will fix that. I will tell you that I have seen in CentOS, I've not played with it in Ubuntu, but I've seen a couple of times in CentOS where uh, when, when the bridge is first set up, it, something goofs with, with DNS and you have to go back into resolve.conf and, and, and edit that or go back into the bridge config and, and specify DNS1, DNS2. So that's where I would start with that. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, and I and I have done it. I you can save once, and I did do resolve comp, and I did try CentOS, but yeah, I'll, I'll do it again. Um, I, I have not tried setting it up from Burt Manager, so I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call, uh, Chris, Canada. I got about a minute. Uh, go straight to your question, please. Okay. Um, I have a Dell Alienware laptop that I inherited from my brother-in-law. Got it fixed up, threw in a two terabyte SSD in there, and put Ubuntu Mate on it and when it boots it actually just goes straight to a minimal grub prompt and when i try to uh um when i spam f12 to pick a boot uh, um partition it just works then but just automatic boot do you are you installing with uefi or bios uefi that's very and, and the and the bio and the uefi is set to boot off of uefi too only time I've ever seen that happen, and this obviously is a fresh install. This was. Well, it, it was a fresh install of 1910 first, and it was doing the same thing, and it continued on even though I've uh, done the release upgrade to 2004. Uh, here's, what I, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest, and I'm sorry I don't have a lot of time to cover this this hour, but I, what I would do is this, Chris. Try and, try and s- go to Dell's website and see if there is a BIOS or a UEFI update for that machine. Apply that and see if, if that fixes your problem. I, I will tell you, I have seen that happen 
uh, a number of different times, but every time it's the same answer, and that is that something is not set up right for it to boot. The, the install is UEFI, but the computer isn't set up to see UEFI, or the, the partition isn't flagged right, or something like that happens, and then, and then the machine won't boot. It just hits that grub prompt and then stops. Um, so I, I would try updating the firmware, see if that works. If it doesn't, give me a call back, and I will help you. Okay. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Dr. Andy Yen is back with us from Proton Mail. I wanted to get him back on so we could discuss some of the latest things that Proton Mail is doing, as well as the Proton Mail blog. And they are doing a fantastic job of covering issues of privacy and security and bringing that information into this, this, the center spotlight so that everybody can take advantage of that. Dr. Andy Yen, welcome back to the program. Uh, hi, yes. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here today. We appreciate you taking the time. So I guess let's start with this. You guys have uh, you guys have been working on the open PGP test suite. Um, why is that interoperability important to privacy and security? And what is ProtonMail doing to support the development of it? Well, I think one of the issues that we have today with a bot uh, uh, you know, applications in the privacy space is that they're essentially walled gardens, right? Uh, everybody needs to be on that platform in order for it to work. Uh, and, uh, you know, that in some ways also limits the potential reach um, of you know, these platforms. And if we look at communication tools, uh, email is actually you know, by far the most common, actually most successful communication tool that's ever been in the device in human history. Uh, and the reason that it works so well is because it's federated. Anybody that you know can run a server can get onto email. Uh, and PGP, uh, you know, it gets a lot of flack for being dated sometimes, for not maybe being you know, as modern as it could be. Um, you know, has the benefit of being able to leverage the email infrastructure that exists today and being able to reach a you know, very very broad audience. So our view is that by developing PGP further, by modernizing the standard and you know, transitioning it, it to something that really doesn't really resemble the PGP of the 90s anymore, uh, you know, we're helping to bring encryption to a much bigger audience by leveraging the fact that we know it's federated. And you know, that's something that I think is very, very important, especially if we want to be able to take private technology to the mainstream. In recent news, we've seen a lot about protests and the privacy implications that come with these protests. I noticed ProtonMail is taking a very firm stance on this. How are these protests being that are that are protesting um, the excessive force by police? How are they being used to invade people's privacy? And how can uh, products like ProtonVPN help people to prevent uh, their privacy from being violated? Well. It's interesting that you bring up the uh, protests because there are so many protests going on today in the world, right? Um, you know, on one side of the spectrum, we have the protests in Hong Kong, which is fighting against state surveillance and you know um, uh, the erosion of democratic rights uh, in Hong Kong by the Chinese government. Uh, then we also have protests, uh, you know, um, in the U.S. centered on racial equality uh, and also the idea of you know um, trying to combat some of the abuses of police. Uh, and even though these two protests are in completely different parts of the world, uh, they actually share the common theme. And the common theme is how do we protect people, uh, you know, whether it's black people, white people, you know, any people in general, citizens of the world, how do we protect citizens against uh, police overreach, uh, police abuse, uh, which is in some sense, you know, state abuse, right? This is essentially um, 
you know, uh, governments overreaching the power that you know, we as citizens uh, have, you know, wanted, you know, have in fact granted them, right? Um, and you know, government is for the people, by the people, right? Uh, and it also shows kind of the danger of technology, right? Uh, you know, in Hong Kong, um, state surveillance, uh, control over the internet, uh, as you know, is done in China, um, gives the company, you know, gives the government uh, enormous power and leverage over the citizens. Uh, similarly, here in the U.S., you know, um, there's more laws and regulations, of course, in the U.S., uh, but at the same time, police have ability to subpoena providers for information. Uh, you know, police have abilities now to deploy facial recognition on a very, very large scale. Uh, and in the digital world, uh, like it or not, we become easier to trace. Uh, and through the companies like Google and Facebook with mass amounts of information, which is all subject to subpoena, uh, you know, um, and warrants. Uh, in fact, it's not very, very hard uh, for government to overreach in these situations, even in you know, democratic societies uh, like the U.S. Uh, so I think what Proton VPN and what Proton Mail does uh, is you know, by ensuring and guaranteeing people's right to privacy online, uh, it's really in some sense also protecting freedom of speech, uh, freedom of protest, uh, which in many ways is the cornerstone of our democracy. Uh, and I believe you know, the protests, you know, these are two very separate protests in completely different parts of the world, uh, but they show really that the idea of protecting privacy, this is something that is of universal importance. It's applicable to all people, no matter where you live, um, and it's something that truly everybody needs to care about. Let's talk, let's dig into that a little bit further. Um, how are governments using private companies to roll out bulk data collection and uh, what is Proton Mail's response to legitimate legal information requests under Swiss law? I ask because, you know, we have seen some progress in a post-Stoden world and where the NSA is no longer allowed officially anyway to do bulk collection on, on American citizens. But we know that they have now turned to corporate entities to accomplish the same goal. So how is that working out and, 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 and how, what is Proton Mail's uh, response and, and part in all of that. We actually published a study quite recently um, on our blog where we actually uh, you know, looked into this, right? And because of the Information Act and other ways, you can in fact get information about government requests and how government has shifted to leveraging big techniques. And what we've seen is, you know, um, since the last couple of years, the number of government requests to the big techniques has increased by around uh, 500%. So it's gone up by a factor of five. Uh, and that, to most people, really should be scary because the amount of information that Google or Facebook has on a normal citizen is way more than what the NSA ever could have collected, right? Uh, and it shows that there is an active effort by states to begin leveraging and getting access to this treasure trove of data. Uh, and that, in a nutshell, is the problem of data in the first place, right? You know, if your business model, like Google or Facebook, is built around collecting as much data as possible and invading privacy, you know, as far as you can get away with, uh, then you create this data that can be misused in you know, some frankly pretty appalling ways, right? Uh, and at Proton, our philosophy with Proton Mail and Proton VPN is different, right? Our philosophy is actually to collect as little information as possible because the only way to protect information at the end of the day, actually, is to not have it at all, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, we don't need to track users actually to provide email services. Uh, we don't track users. Uh, we don't monitor, uh, you know, what people are doing. Uh, and we create an ecosystem, you know, through both our policies, but also our encryption, 
such that if we were to you know, get served with a subpoena, there's actually very little that we can disclose because we don't collect information in the first place. Now, on the other side, of course, there are some cases, some situations, where there is a legitimate you know, law enforcement need for data, right? Um, we all know that there's cyber crime, you know, the, the cyber crime, that there's hackers and there's people that abuse uh, you know, um, the internet uh, for you know, bad purposes. And in those cases, uh, we are, of course, willing to cooperate with law enforcement. We're willing to you know, assist. We're willing to you know, help investigators uh, you know, look deeper into these accounts. But our default position is that you know, we assume users are innocent unless proven guilty, right? Uh, and we will only you know, assist in cases when there's a very, very strong probable cause that's backed up by a court order. Uh, and this is very, very different uh, from you know, Google and Facebook's approach, uh, where they basically collect everybody's data, whether or not they're under suspicion or not. Uh, and they do that because it's part of their business model. Uh, and that's kind of you know, the difference between targeted surveillance and mass surveillance, right? You know, targeted surveillance sometimes does have a legitimate purpose, uh, but it's the mass surveillance. It's you know doing it on a mass scale against largely innocent citizens. You know, that's what uh, we're strongly opposed to, and that's what we believe is a threat to our democracy. So to be clear, you don't see this, you don't see in end-to-end encryption, and you don't see the privacy tools that you create as a shroud for illegal activity. In fact, if people violate Swiss law, uh, Proton Mail will respond. Yeah. Well, you know, it is sometimes a shroud for illegal activity, right? You definitely can leverage the fact that we're end-to-end encrypted to conduct some things that are illegal. But you know what? People can also leverage airplanes for terrorist attacks, right? People can also leverage trucks for terrorist mm. attacks. Uh, you know, people can also, mm-hmm. you know, terrorists also use sidewalks, right? They use guns, they use, you know, bulletproof vests, all these things, right? Um, so we need to look at this from a bigger picture. Um, there's no absolutes in the world, right? You cannot say this technology is absolutely used for good, this is absolutely used for bad. Uh, you know, tools can be used for good or for bad. And just like you wouldn't ban airplanes because of 9-11, uh, you know, you also wouldn't ban privacy because a few people, you know, are misusing it for bad purposes. So the way that we need to look at this is the overall value to society, right? Um, if we live in a world with zero privacy protections, complete surveillance, uh, and, you know, total control, uh, I would bet you that in that world, it would have lower crime than the world that we live in today. Uh, but is that the society that, that, that you know, we really want, right? Um, are we willing to accept all the downsides that come with that in order to, you know, um, get to zero crime, right? And by and large, I think most people would say no, um, because the downsides, you know, losing freedom of speech, losing democracy, you know, losing the ability to, you know, um, control government to hold into account, uh, these are all very serious things to give up. Uh, so if you look at holistically from a big picture standpoint, uh, in fact, you know, the values that privacy, democracy, and freedom, you know, the values that we get from this um, are well in excess to some of the potential downsides. And that's what makes it worth protecting. What are your views on biometric authentication, particularly on mobile devices? Are they secure? Should people be using them? And can people be legally required to unlock their phones? What do people need to know? Well, uh, that's kind of like asking me, you know, if a password is secure, right? Um, in general, they're not really secure. And the reason it's not so secure is, you know, if I lose my password or someone steals my password, I can always change my password. But I can't really change my fingerprint, right? Um, so I'm essentially using a key 
which is something that I cannot replace or change. Uh, and I'm leaving a copy everywhere I go on everything I touch, right? Uh, so when you think about it that way, uh, biometrics uh, you know, really you know, are kind of a core way of uh, securing things. Um, so I understand the convenience of it. Uh, there are some use cases where it's useful, um, but I don't really believe that you know biometrics today are ready to replace traditional you know passwords, right? Just because of the inherent flaws of you know fingerprints, right? It's uh, your fingerprints are everywhere. Um, that's not really secure. And you can't change it if it gets breached. Uh, so you know, um, I think that's a problem. And of course, you also, you know, right now, uh, the current law, the way it's set up, is at the border. For example, um, if your phone is secured by biometrics, uh, you can be forced to use your fingerprints uh, to unlock it because it is actually acceptable to you know ask for your fingerprint for entering a country, right? Um, but you know, current laws don't force you to to, to divulge information that's only in your head. Uh, so in that sense, you know, when it comes to you know, being forced to uh, you know unlock something, a password is also more secure than a fingerprint. Going uh, digging a little further into pins and passwords, how long should a pin be? How long should a password be on a mobile device um, to feel that the device is safe or secure? Do you have any recommendations for people? Uh, you know, this is a very deep and complicated topic. Um, first of all, right. Um, Obviously, the longer the password is, the more entropy it has, the stronger it is, right? But uh, you know, if it's so long that you can't remember it, uh, that also sort of defeats the purpose. Um, you know, typically, myself, uh, I try to keep things you know, between 12 and 16 characters. Uh, but more importantly, uh, I try to use passphrases instead of passwords, uh, just because you know those um, are a easier to remember, uh, but you know, b also um, you know have equivalent entropy or sometimes even more entropy. Do you have any recommendations for instant messaging? Obviously, uh, SMS text messaging has become uh, very popular and is a, is, a, is, a, is a way for people to stay in communication. But as we're learning and as we saw in the state of Minnesota, police are now using contact tracing and they are starting to work with the cell fo- phone companies to track people and track people's location and track the contents of the message because, of course, SMS is not encrypted. Um, is there anything out there that can help people with that? Yeah, I would say the gold standard today, you know, when it comes to instant messaging, uh, is probably still Signal, right? You know, Signal, of course, is not perfect, and has uh, you know some downsides as well. Um, but as far as what's out there today, uh, it's really Signal, um, kind of you know taking maybe the top spot, and maybe tied to the Signal is also Wire. That's a bit kind of less known, but it's also something that you know people are using. Uh, so those are the two that I generally uh, would recommend. Talk a little bit about App Key Protection System and how does that work with ProtonMail? So that's actually a system that we developed uh, specifically for um, iOS. Uh, and the you know, reason we developed the App Key Protection System on iOS is you know, we often uh, have situations where malware gets installed on people's devices, right? Uh, and generally speaking, you know, encryption doesn't really help you if your device is compromised. Uh, if they can log every single keystroke um, that you know, you're uh, typing, uh, it doesn't matter that we encrypt or not, right? People forget what you're you know, typing. Uh, and one thing that uh, we noticed was, in fact, you know, a common attack vector against end-to-end encrypted services like ProtonMail is actually attempting to compromise uh, people's devices. And we first noticed this among a subset of our users, which is in fact uh, dissidents uh, who you know um, are from the, the Tibetan community. 
so they obviously you know, um, are engaged in cyber warfare largely with the Chinese government. Um, the Chinese government is trying to identify them, you know, capture them, put them in prison, etc. Right? You know, terrible things happen as a result of this. Uh, and many of these people actually uh, are Proton users. And we actually uh, you know, saw about a year and a half ago a very specialized targeted malware, um, which was attempting to compromise iOS devices you know, owned by Tibetan dissidents. Uh, and then this malware would essentially try to extract the local data um, from the Pocono app. So the app protection system uh, was something to further secure and encrypt the data that's stored locally uh, on you know, iOS devices uh, so that even if they were compromised on the device through some other means, maybe clicking a bad link um, or maybe through some you know, iOS compromise or some zero day, uh, there'd be an additional layer of protection uh, that would make it harder for their ProtonMail data to be stolen off the device. I'd like to ask you a little bit about Apple versus Android, if I can, from a security and privacy standpoint. Obviously, with the work that you do at ProtonMail, you are uh, you are researching and paying attention to the trends and uh, and the platforms, obviously, that ProtonMail runs on. So from, from your security experience, what is the better platform from a security and privacy standpoint, or are they the same, Android or iOS? Uh, there's a pros and cons of uh, both, right? Um, and I would say, you know, um, on the surface, right, from what we know, from what we can see, and kind of, you know, from public information out there, uh, it's believed that both companies, Apple and Google, do put a pretty big emphasis, uh, you know, on security. Um, obviously, Apple has a, you know, um, stronger emphasis on privacy, uh, because Google, you know, as much as they try to convince people, um, it's not a privacy company, will never be a privacy company, and will never have user privacy, you know, um, at heart, right? It's, it's just fundamentally against the business model. Uh, but from a security standpoint, uh, they both, you know, have an interest uh, in, you know, probably doing the right thing. Um, now, really, though, it comes down with all software actually to a matter of trust and really a trust in people, right? Um, whether or not Apple or, you know, um, Android is secure, uh, we can never really know for sure. Uh, the best kind of proxy we have for this is can we trust the companies, uh, you know, behind that uh, to really put, you know, um, user security in, in the first place and is that something that, you know, they strongly care about. Um, and in this regard, uh, you know, because of kind of Google's business model and the way, you know, um, Google tries to, you know, test the limits of what is acceptable when it comes to, you know, breaching user privacy, uh, I would tend to trust, uh, you know, Apple a little bit more. Um, but, you know, um, even then I still remain skeptical, right? I, I, don't, I don't, you know, fully trust, uh, you know, either one of them. Uh, and that, of course, is why, you know, even on Apple, we have our, you know, app protection system. Is there a third-party operating system? Is there, you know, the Copperhead OSs of the world back when they were around and, and, and obviously a, a bunch of the Android spinoffs or Sailfish OS or UbiPorts? Have you seen any third-party mobile operating system that you say that is by far the best operating system on a, for a mobile experience if you're looking from a security and privacy standpoint? I actually think it's a massive problem today uh, that, you know, if you look at all the mobile ecosystem, there's really only two players, right? It's, it's, it's essentially a monopoly, right? You know, they, they, you know, with Apple and uh, Google. And I think that's a massive problem for competition. Uh, it's a massive problem. Actually, for you know, at the end of the day, you know, user experience, uh, you know, costs. Uh, it's, it's, it's not 
it's not correct, right? We need to have more choices on the marketplace. We need to have more competition. Um, but at the same time, uh, if we think about it, we can see why there isn't more competition in this space because the barriers to entry, the amount of time, effort, resources, and money uh, that you need to invest to you know, um, build a computing system is just so high and so massive, right? Uh, so you know, I like the fact that there's some efforts, uh, you know, forking Android and you know, trying to do things in a you know, more security and uh, you know, privacy-focused way. But uh, in fact, uh, these things are expensive, right? And unless you have the backing of a massive company with huge amounts of revenue, um, you know, it's it's going to be tough to develop these alternative platforms um, you know, at the same speed and at the same you know, level of user experience uh, that, say, the latest Android or iOS uh, could offer. Uh, so it's something that I personally would like to see changed. Uh, it's something that maybe as Proton gets bigger and bigger uh, and is able to have more influence in this space um, that we can you know, assist in helping uh, to change. Uh, but really today, uh, it is a monopoly uh, for two players. Uh, and that's just the reality of it today. I think a lot of that comes in because of the app infrastructure. If you want applications, those are the two platforms you can get them on. And I think that drives a lot of user adoption. And of course, the fact that their devices are pre-installed and sold in stores, of course, go a long way to that. But you guys are attacking this on a different front in that you are replacing the Google suite with privacy-aware alternatives. What is the status of projects like Proton Calendar? And how can the, and can it be tied to other services without sacrificing privacy? You know, in, from the Google infrastructure, I think when people are looking at calendar suites, they say to themselves, it's great because I can publish my calendar online or I can have invitation requests come into the calendar. Does Proton Mail, Proton Calendar, excuse me, work with any of those things? And if so, um, what, what is the status of it? Well, uh, it's currently actually in beta. So on the web version, you can actually already go online and you know use Proton Calendar, and there's actually a lot of people already using it uh, in beta. Uh, we're also working, of course, uh, you know, on the uh, mobile versions. Uh, so we hope by the end of this year to be able to release on all platforms out of beta you know, to a broader uh, you know, general audience. Uh, and uh, it's it's tricky, right? Um, you know, Google has obviously spent uh, you know over a decade and probably tens of billions of dollars to you know, build a D Suite, right? Um, and we are you know, attempting to do the same thing, but we, we have a kind of a late start in fewer resources, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, we also see very strong uh, you know, demand and support uh, for more privacy and more security online. Um, so we're not going to catch up and hit future clarity on day one. But as time goes on, uh, you know, especially the calendar and other you know products. You know, even just within calendar and beta in the in the past you know uh, six months, um, we've added a lot of features, right? Um, and at the, at the end of the day, I've never met anybody that tells me you know I don't want uh, more security um, and more privacy, right? It's something that everybody wants. It's a it's it's part of being human actually. And our goal really is to be able to deliver that uh, with as few trade offs as possible. Uh, and it will not happen overnight. Uh, but, you know, gradually, as we continue developing, uh, adding features and refining, uh, you know, the Proton suite of products, um, I do think that we will really be able to eliminate most of these trade-offs, most of these, you know, barriers to entry. Uh, and we've been doing that on mail. Um, we've started doing that now on calendar. Uh, it's a long journey, but of course we're committed to doing this because I think it's quite important, uh, you know, for the future of the internet and really for, you know, building a better world, actually. 
In addition to Proton Calendar, one of the products that I've been keeping a very close eye on because I'm so excited about it is Proton Drive. Now, I understand there there are a number of technical challenges in developing Proton Drive, but what is the status of that and what are some of the technical challenges that you're coming across to create a truly private uh, cloud-based drive? Yeah, so that's also um, in development uh, internally. We've already started an alpha uh, within the company, so we're testing it internally now. Uh, and I would say that effort is probably between six and nine months behind the calendar effort, right? So, you know, hopefully uh, within a year after calendar has a you know, public global release, uh, we'll be able to do the same uh, with Proton Drive. So in some sense, those two projects really are sort of moving in parallel. Um, the difficulty really when it comes to the Proton uh, Drive um, are probably, you know, um, twofold, right? Uh, one, uh, it requires a lot of low-level engineering because you know, anything that is de- dealing with uh, you know, um, files and file storage requires integrating to the operating system at a very you know, deep level, at a very low level. Uh, and doing this on Windows, Mac, you know, iOS, and Android, on all platforms, and also web, uh, is quite tricky, right? Um, and when it comes to very large files and you want to do that, uh, there's also an overhead for encryption. So you have to make it in fast performance. Uh, so that's uh, one part of the challenge. Uh, the other part of the challenge is, I would say, unlike a lot of other companies uh, that are around these days, you know, our solution to infrastructure isn't to you know, buy Google Cloud, Microsoft Cloud, or you know, Amazon Cloud services, right? I mean, that's, not, uh, you know, that's not how we want to do it, because it's not good for privacy, it's not good for security, and it's very, very important to be able to host you know, our infrastructure in our own data centers. Uh, but that takes time, right? Buying the hardware, uh, you know, getting the financing for that, building up the data centers, uh, building up the network and the software required to run these massive server farms to store all the data um, is quite intensive. Uh, so in fact, a lot of our efforts in the past year and a half working on Proton uh, Drive have really been focused also on building out the infrastructure. And this is not virtual infrastructure, right? This is you know, actual servers that we buy, that we install, that you know, people are in there doing this by hand, right? Uh, and that, of course, uh, limits the uh, speed at which we can move. Uh, but I think it's important to make that investment now, uh, because you know, as you scale and get bigger and bigger, uh, it becomes harder and harder to switch to running your own infrastructure later on. Uh, so it, of course, you know, puts our release schedules back probably by a year um, longer than it would be if we had gone straight to one of the public clouds. Uh, but in the long run, it delivers I think, a better user experience and a better uh, security and privacy uh, for the end user. And for us, it's not really about doing things fast or doing things uh, cheaply. It's about you know doing things right. And we prefer to take the extra time to make sure that you know, we do this in the best possible way. Talk a little bit about what alternative routing is and how ProtonMail is using that to help anti-censorship measures. You know, this is the one topic that I don't like to talk too much about, uh, precisely because I don't want to give our adversaries, say, you know, in the Russian government, uh, a step-by-step guide of how to, uh, you know, block Proton, right? But I can, of course, explain the rationale. Uh, you know, back uh, earlier this year, uh, we were actually blocked uh, in Russia. Um, it's actually completely, you know, unjustified block. Um, I think it's um, for political reasons and also because a lot of uh, the governments, uh, you know, people that don't like the government, they don't like the government in Russia are probably using Proton, right? Um, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, but also not unexpected. We're also um, blocked in China for the same reason. And um, I think there will be you know, more countries in the future uh, 
which are not very you know open to freedom, um, who will want to block services like Proton, which give digital freedom to citizens, right? Uh, and the motivation to do alternative routing and to build infrastructure you know, around this was really to make it much harder for our you know, um, applications and our software to be blocked. So today, even though we're blocked in Russia, uh, if you use a lot of the apps, um, in fact, it still works, right? Uh, and I can't go into too much technical details of how it works. Um, of course, people can probably you know, reverse engineer it if they want to look at it, because a lot of the code is open source. Um, but you know, we use a variety of methods um, to try to bypass the most common ways of you know, um, state censorship. Uh, and it's, it's been effective. It's come in quite handy in a number of occasions um, and doesn't always work, uh, but it's better than nothing. Uh, and I think it's important that we continue to build technologies in this direction uh, because you know, the way that you promote uh, freedom you know, uh, online uh, and the way that you support your user communities uh, is actually through tech, right? Uh, and if you do it right, uh, you can actually make it quite difficult uh, to block your app. Andy, before we let you go, is there anything else that is happening at Proton Mail, Proton the company, that people should be aware of? I think um, these are pretty tough times that we're in economically, right? Uh, a lot of people have uh, lost their jobs. Uh, and uh, we're very fortunate to be one of the companies out there that is still hiring. Um, we were able to, you know, grow uh, even during the uh, shutdown. I think because, you know, we offer secure communications more or less, right? And this is something that um, the world always needs. Um, and so we're really taking advantage of this opportunity to try to grow the team, get more people on board, uh, and build the features and products faster. Because I know a lot of people out there, you know, yourself included, um, are really eager to see these things come to market. Um, so, you know, if there's any listeners out there uh, who are passionate about internet, um, freedom, privacy, you know, really building um, an internet ecosystem that puts users first and ahead of profits, uh, then we're looking to hire, right? So, uh, you know, if you've been out of a job and you've been impacted by the whole COVID situations, uh, come to our site, check out our career page uh, and apply. Uh, you know, um, we're really here to serve people. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, the way that we ensure that is by having people you know, with this type of mentality come and join us. Uh, so we definitely um, are looking to expand our team uh, over the summer, and uh, we hope to hire some great talent in the coming months. His name is Andy Yen. He is the founder of ProtonMail, the website ProtonMail.com, secure email based in Switzerland. Check them out. Check out the end-to-end -end encryption, the anonymous email. You're backed by Swiss privacy. It's easy to use. All of the apps, at least the customer-facing ones, are all open source. A modern inbox design. It's what we use to take your feedback at live at asknoahshow.com. And we appreciate Dr. Andy. And thank you so much for coming, taking the time to come on the program. We'll get you back real soon. Yes. Thanks again. Again, open phones, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I'm telling you, I feel sometimes like that guy has forgotten more about security and privacy than I'll learn if I live to be 100 years old. Absolutely fantastic to speak with Dr. Andy Yen. Hey, just a couple of uh, just a couple minutes left in the, in the, in the hour. Uh, we'll try and get to a piece of feedback here. Mario writes in and says, hey, I just stumbled onto your show not that long ago and just wanted to say how pleased I am at listening to you speak on your show. I totally understand your approach to security and your views on privacy, especially with home IoT. Anyway, I just finished listening to episode 186, Matrix Madness, and thought it was neat to hear how a piece of open source software can have so much of a positive effect on how we're able to communicate, especially during these hard times. It's kind of hit home for me and just recently deployed a couple of public and private Jitsi servers in order 
for our company and customers to be able to communicate effectively. I'm a huge proponent of open source and Linux in general and try to use it where applicable. Anyway, just wanted to mention uh, that I'm a new listener and enjoying your show. Keep up the great work. Keep on spreading the tech news and views. Mario. Hey, Mario, thanks. I really appreciate you dropping the kind word. A huge thanks to JT, our executive producer, Sarah, our call screener. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Colonel Linux. Of course, you can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. That's how you'll stay up to date. Find out when episodes are, are postponed or every once in a while we have to cancel. We'll be live next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, streamed at AskNoahShow.com. This hour of the show's over, but you can check out the show notes for all of the articles and references you heard during the episode, as well as a complete catalog of back episodes by going to AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday. We'll be right back.